The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Who Told I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, welcome. Thank you for having me. We're coming towards the close of this show, The Root of the Rot, and one of the things that we are going to have to examine is the situation and position of the Jews, not just in the time of the early church, but throughout history and up towards a uh, present-day 20th century, which is where we've left off after our examinations of the world wars. And you can see, this is a... Um, how can we say, difficult, challenging, sensitive topic, I suppose, not just for Abe Foxman and the, the ADL types, but because of the perceived, quote-unquote, anti-Semitism that uh, the Catholics get blamed for throughout the centuries. Why is it difficult, or should I, maybe I shouldn't presume that, do you find it difficult to talk about this topic with Catholics? No, I think there are, are some very objective facts uh, that uh, need to be looked at. Uh, uh, there's uh, the, the reasoning is very clear. Uh, the uh, the Catholic Church never hated Jews or persecuted Jews. Uh, the only thing that the Catholic Church did in its past was to take certain measures in order to inhibit the influence of Jews with regard to any kind of overthrow or uh, opposition to Catholic principles in society. That it did. I mean, they were very clear, especially Pius IV. But it actually always protected the Jews uh, from physical persecution and blame. They would be blamed for various things in history and poisoning the wells and uh, in, in Europe, and the, the Catholic Church always took a position against that and, and protected them. I suppose we should start by defining what Judaism is. I think, see, as Catholics, we tend to think that we have at least some grasp of the Jewish, at least the old Jewish religion, because Catholicism takes some cues from it in the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the Messiah, our Lord. Um, but I suppose we should clarify that Judaism is, is not a heresy, but a perfidy. Now, what does that mean when we say that? Well, first of all, qualify the word perfidy. The, the Latin word is perfidia, which, means, which comes off badly in English uh, as a, almost like a treachery, you know, when you say perfidy. That, that's not what the Catholic Church means by it. 
it means it in a, a very specific way, and that is simply uh, an infidelity and an unfaithfulness to something they ought to be faithful to. Uh, they were founded by God from the Semites. Abraham was called from Ur, and he was uh, of the children of Sem, and uh, for the specific purpose of preparing a people in order to receive the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And because the, the rest of the population had been so corrupted by original sin that the Messiah could not be received by them. There was, he could not come into their house. They could not be his own. Uh, and so there had to be a people that had to be prepared over many centuries for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, so this is that was the the call of Abraham and and the sacrifice of Isaac. All of those things were uh, done in order to prepare this people for the coming of the Messiah. So it, it is a by its very nature a religion that looks forward to a Messiah. It is a a, a religion that uh, it's like a, a bud that must bloom or a. a uh, a caterpillar that must turn into a butterfly. It is in expectation of something. It's not, uh, you know, something like Islam or, or uh, other kind of religions that are not looking for anything specific, but are just religions, you might say. Uh, Judaism has in it this this idea of expectation. So the uh, the uh, Messiah, of course, did come, and the problem was that most of the Jews rejected him as the Messiah and continued to have the expectation of another Messiah. Uh, so the uh, Judaism was revealed as the true religion. Uh, they were the chosen people to receive the Messiah. Uh, their whole vocation as chosen people was to receive the Messiah and to promote the Messiah. And uh, so uh, when they failed in that and they rejected, for the most part, not all of them, but... Uh, when they rejected the Messiah, uh, they uh, went on with their religion in the hope of a future Messiah. And so there, it was the old true religion that now became uh, the false religion, or a false religion, because they missed the true Messiah. Uh, so that, that is the nature of Judaism. So it is quite different from a heresy, a Christian heresy. Uh, it is uh, an infidelity to their original vocation to receive the Messiah and to promote him. So that, that's what that means. Well, in, in Your Excellency, the, the vision of the Messiah uh, that, that was held by the Jews at the time of our Lord is hinted at at various places in, in Scripture. Um, and we can see a, a reference to it really in the release of Barabbas. I mean, Barabbas really held on to the notion of the Messiah that had that was the prevailing notion, and can you tell our listeners what the prevailing idea of the Messiah was going to be and, and why they weren't really prepared for our Lord? Yes, if you look at the first century B.C. literature concerning the Messiah, uh, not, not scripture, but just Jewish literature, uh, you can see that they were expecting someone that would bring Judaism to... Uh, it's uh, to a very prominent place in the world that uh, would restore the the greatness of Solomon and f- go far beyond Solomon, where they would become the leaders of the world and and uh, 
would rule the world. It, it was, uh, I mean, there's big long references to it, I, which we can't go into here, but that was the general gist of it, that uh, that uh, Judaism would be propelled and projected to a, uh, a, a a very very great world status, and that was the most popular idea of the Messiah in the first century BC. So most of the Jews had that idea of the Messiah. This is why you see the Jews uh, occasionally trying to make him king, uh, which he rejected uh, because they they wanted him to be a, a temporal Messiah. Uh, they were. Uh, not happy to hear of a spiritual kingdom, uh, uh, a kingdom that was not of this world. Uh, they wanted to throw off the Roman yoke and uh, and become uh, a great nation. Uh, so that was uh, what we call temporal messianism, and that was the principal reason why they rejected Christ as the Messiah, because he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. He was clearly the Messiah. Uh, but they did not want that kind of messiah. I, I think it's interesting, Yersia. Uh, this, this, what you mentioned, it runs deep with, within within Jews because we see this with Saul, didn't we? We saw that the, the Jews wanted, we need a king, you know, and our, uh, our Lord had responded, "Well, I'm I'm your king. That that's how this works." And they they insisted <laughs> that they needed a king, and so um, this wasn't a new thing with the Jews. Uh, no, no, it was uh, the. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, the um, judge Samuel lamented the fact that the Jews wanted uh, a king in Saul and wanted to be like the Gentiles. The, all the Gentiles have kings. Why don't we have a king? And so it, it, it was a theme that that ran through Judaism. Uh, uh, not all. I mean, uh, you know, you, you make generalizations, but. Uh, on the whole, the Jews did reject Christ uh, when he came. Uh, there were some very great exceptions to that, but on the whole, they did. Would, would it be fair to say that this is the seed of what we would know today as Zionism really started back then? Uh, I don't know if Zionism, Zionism is, a, is a, a sort of a branch or idea of Judaism, which is not held by uh, many Jews, uh, especially the, the more orthodox and the... Uh, uh, Hasidic Jews uh, reject the notion of Zionism entirely. It's something that grew up in the 19th century, uh, and it was not necessarily meant for Palestine. There were various other solutions, even Madagascar, that they were considering. Uh, and uh, so that's, I don't think really you're looking at Zionism. I think you're looking at temporal Messianism, and that is that the, the Messiahs, for the Jews will be someone who will catapult the Jewish people to to uh, temporal prominence and dominance in the sense of at least uh, you know in the moral sense uh, not necessarily that they'll rule the world like the Roman Empire but the uh, that they will have a, a prominence and dominance in the world and uh, that that will be the as a matter of fact many of them no longer believe in a personal messiah but in a messianic era. That is where Judaism uh, has that uh, prominent role in the world. Well, you have made some reference to writings in the first century, um, New York and we, we have some of those writings being early opposition to the church. Obviously, if Christianity is, is a fraud, as the 
holders of the old Jewish religion and the, and the religion that continued after our Lord came, then they're not necessarily going to be allied with the interests of the church. And I was reading through some of the quotes of uh, of these early centuries, and and they're they're pretty they're pretty strong. Um, there's a there's a Saint Simeon Bar Sabai. Uh, who says that the Jews are the perpetual enemies of the church who can be always found in stormy times, constant in their insatiable hatred and not hesitating to make any calumnious accusation. He would definitely be rung up by the ADL or the Southern Poverty Law Center these days, Your Excellency. Um, He died in 341, so that, I mean, just uh, to to note the, the time there, in the early church, the, the Jews allied themselves with the pagans, and this is attested to by many people in the early church in writings. I mean, it's not something uh, that has been cooked up. This is uh, verifiable that they allied themselves with the pagans against the Christians. Uh, yes, the, the Jews considered Christianity to be a, a heresy, to be a sect that uh, needed to be wiped out. Uh, and uh, that uh, so they had a common ground with the pagans in in wanting to undo Christianity, and there's a lot of evidence for that. Well, I mean, we we can look to scripture too. You're saying, I mean, Saint Saint Paul was there busy collecting cloaks for for uh, people who hated Christianity enough to to kill people over it. Um, I think there's also a quote from from Emperor Theodosius. Um, who had banned Jews from from public office, and and his quote was, let them not be prison guards, lest the Christians, as is usually the case, suffer another form of prison when they are sometimes cajoled by the hatred of their guards. You figure it's got to be pretty bad if if you've got to take time out to uh, ban them from a particular type of uh, profession. Yes, the... the the Jews have always been uh, very vivacious and tenacious. That is, in whatever they do, uh, those are their qualities in whatever they do. And so they're, they're, it's not surprising that, they're, uh, that they would be very opposed to Christianity, especially in the early centuries, but even thereafter, uh, that they would take every opportunity to undo uh, Christianity, which they did, uh, they, uh, and uh, but they, you know they're they're very tenacious about what they do. Uh, that's why uh, Cardinal Biot says that this age that we live in, which will be an age of apostasy, he said this back in the 1920s, will end with the conversion of the Jews that Saint Paul mentions in chapter 11 of Romans. And that will solve the problems of the world, because when the Jews do, in fact, as a people, as in general, convert to Christianity, they will Christianize the world. <laughs> they will be as tenacious and vivacious about their conversion to Christianity as they have been in their opposition to Christianity. That's what Cardinal Leo said. That's a trigger for one of the signs of the end of the world, I think, Your Excellency, is it not, if the the Jews are going to convert? Certainly it's something that will happen in the latter times. That's all in St. Paul chapter 11 of Romans. Very interesting. And uh, he ends all that with that famous quote of, how do we scrutinize God? I mean, paraphrasing terribly there, but 
uh, God is so mysterious in his ways. How, you know, who has been his counselor, and who can figure all this out? And it's a beautiful quote at the end of St. Paul. Uh, that you know, he talks about this great mystery uh, of the uh, the conversion of the Jews at the end of uh, toward the end of the world. I wouldn't say it's going to absolutely coincide, but it will be toward the end of the world. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, that's a great day to look forward to. Uh, well, I was going to say it has to be very miraculous. <laughs> yes, very miraculous, and in my opinion, it would solve everything because. Uh, do, given their great influence uh, uh, in the world, they they will be as strong in their in their in their adherence to Christianity as they have been in their adherence to Judaism. Uh, I think most priests will tell you that no one makes a better convert to Catholicism than a Jew. When when they embrace Catholicism, they embrace it totally, uh, and and they they are not a people of half measures. They are not a people that live in a dream world or who compromise. They are a people of a of full measures, and and when they do convert to Catholicism, they convert completely, and they are very zealous. <laughs> I believe New York as someone of, of Chinese heritage. I, I can tell you that they're one of the few groups of people I've worked with in my professional capacity in teaching that are as hard on their children as Asian parents can be on their mm-hmm. children. So yes, I've worked with many, true. many, many Jewish kids. <laughs> yes, the, uh, like in their performance of uh, the, the, the classical music, for example, uh, the, you know, the great violinists and pianists are mostly Jews. Uh, and they work hard. They, they, they work hard at whatever they do. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they accomplish their goals, and, and those goals are held out to them by their parents. And, and uh, I think that that's something to admire in them. Uh, <laughs> we should learn from them. Uh, they, they, it's almost a, a universal Jewish characteristic. Now, Yertha, you, you alluded to the fact that the Church protected the Jews during the Middle Ages. Obviously, we have an entire period, let's say between 500 and 1789, where Jews are not, how could I say, they're not full members of society or they're not fully integrated because society is mostly Christian. Um, and so they're not given the ability to rise uh, in, in public prominence. And after the revolution, which we've obviously talked about on, on the series, we get a lot more uh, exposure to, shall we say, Jewish thought. Um, and we have a couple, uh, uh, they, would, they would be considered luminaries. We would not consider them luminaries. But could you tell us about them? One is Bernard Lazar, and one is, unfortunately, kind of close to my name, Heinrich Heine. And uh, could you tell us about these, uh, these people? Uh, yes, yeah, so well, Bernard Lazar was, uh, he wrote the work L'Antisemitisme, that's in French, the anti-Semitism, in which he, he makes some very, very clear admissions about Jewish opposition to Christianity and, and how uh, it has allied itself with all of the revolutions of the 19th century and the secret societies and uh, you know, and, and he's Jewish. He's saying these things. So this is not something that comes from from some uh, Catholic Jew hater or anything like that. This is straight from the horse's mouth, we might say. So, uh, and that's 
something that everyone can read is, is that book. Uh, he's writing in the 1890s about all of these things and, and, and uh, saying things that, that have been alleged by Catholics all during the 19th century that they were allied to the revolutions. And, um, the, um, uh, and Heinrich Heine also, uh, uh, he um, uh, you know, was a socialist, a communist, and uh, very much allied with all of the revolutionary ideas of the 19th century. Uh, many, many others. There is Rosa Luxemburg, and um, uh, oh, uh, names are escaping me now, but the whole socialist movement was very much peopled by Jews, uh, and socialism always involved a revolt against the Catholic or Christian monarchies, such as either the Tsar or the Kaiser, uh, those are Protestant and Orthodox, but uh, any sort of establishment of Christianity was was uh, part of the socialist agenda to destroy. So the the uh, socialists were always the the enemies of the state, and that's why uh, you know many times Jews were considered to be subversives because they uh, wanted to overthrow the the Christianized, uh, the at least Christian, we'll say, uh, monarchies. And um, uh, so um, that, that's... Uh, but you see, the, the after their emancipation in 1789 and their gradual emancipation in other uh, societies uh, during the 19th century, their natural inclination was to overthrow established Christianity. If I lived in Israel, my natural inclination would be to overthrow established Judaism and replace it with Christianity. I mean, you know, it's, it would be just my natural inclination. I would not be happy with an established false religion. The, the, I would not be happy in, in living in England with established Protestantism. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, agitate against it or anything, but uh, you know, if the opportunity presented itself, I would like to see that replaced by Catholicism, of course. Uh, and so I think that they saw established Catholicism and even established Christianity as the enemy of Judaism, that the Jews suffered a lot under this establishment, and therefore that the socialist and, and general lib- generally liberal movements of the 19th century were in their interests. The revolutionary movements were in their interests so that they could create a secularistic society in which at least there would be no religion established and where they would be less impeded than they were under the, the Christian states. Uh, for example, in, in Kaiser's Germany, you, you know, they could not teach in universities, they could not hold certain offices, and um, it was only until after World War One that Jews were completely emancipated in Europe. Uh, and uh, but up to that time, they were, uh, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, uh, impeded from certain things and, and impeded from taking part in, uh, totally in society, uh, with the exception of France and England, I would say. But uh, in uh, in those more conservative countries, uh, like for example, they could not live in Vienna until 1848. Mm. Uh, so the you know there was a lot of uh, restriction like that. And uh, uh, but with, as the revolutions gradually uh, took hold in Europe, so did greater emancipation of Jews take hold. 
in Europe. And uh, so they, they were naturally on that side of revolution because the, the established Christianity was something that they were very uncomfortable with. Well, and you're talking about that established Christianity, RCMC, so that's the external, that's something external to Judaism, the, the church and its progress. The Jews also really had to deal with the fact that the temple had been destroyed and that their religion had to rise from the rubble of the, the destroyed temple. And part of that was the Talmud, and there's actually two Talmuds. There's one from... Uh, Jerusalem, which uh, was in the 3rd and 4th century, and the one that was in the 5th and 6th century, it's referred to as the one of Babylon. Now, Nursi, I, I don't feel comfortable repeating some of these things uh, that the Talmud says. I suppose if you feel that uh, you, you can repeat some of them, they're pretty horrible. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about you know, why the Talmud exists and if you'd like to tell us some of the actual things it proposes? Yeah, the Talmud is a rabbinical commentary on the law, the law being the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of uh, sacred uh, scripture, and uh, then, of course, you know, the prophets and everything else, but uh, primarily the first five books of, of the Old Testament, that's the law, the Torah. And uh, so they would, they would comment that, as, as, as St. Thomas Aquinas would comment sacred scripture, and the, the Talmud talks about a great many things, uh, and it doesn't, uh, you know, it talks about everything. Both Talmuds are, are lengthy and, and talk about many things. But they, uh, the Talmud does contain uh, 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 very negative comments about Catholicism and Catholics. Um, for example, if a Gentile, either a shepherd or someone who raises small farm animals, should fall into a well, you leave him there, but you do not throw him in. You also leave the minim, that means the Christians, in there, the apostates and the informers, but also you throw them in. Um, and, uh, the, for example, the money of the goyim, that means the Christians, has been given to the Jews, and thus it is permitted to steal from them or to deceive them. Uh, it is, and these are all quotes from, from the Talmud, uh, it is forbidden to give back to a goy, that means a Christian, an object which he has lost. And then they say very horrible things about our Lord and Our Lady, uh, that uh, Christ was illegitimate and conceived during menstruation, and he had the soul of Esau, which of course is a, a reprobate, that he was a fool, a conjurer, a seducer, that he was crucified, buried in hell, and set up as an idol ever since by his followers. Uh, it says the Blessed Virgin Mary is represented uh, uh, as a prostitute who deserted her husband. Uh, and uh, in the book of uh, Zohar, it says that um, Jesus died like a beast and was buried in the, quote, dirt heap where they throw the dead bodies of dogs and asses and where the sons of Esau, that means the Christians, and of Ishmael, the Turks, also Jesus and Mohammed, uncircumcised and unclean like dead dogs, are buried. So uh, those are some examples of the Talmud. And, and it's uh, you know another case uh, of a very strong anti-Christian feeling among Jews. Now it should be also understood that most modern Jews go more by the Talmud than by the 
the Torah, meaning, I mean, the Torah meaning the first five books of, of the Old Testament, the Talmud has a, a much greater influence upon the theology of modern Jews than the Torah does. As a matter of fact, many of them don't even know what the Torah says. That's my own experience. Uh, they, they are not familiar with it. They, they are, are taught the commentaries on the Torah from, uh, from the Talmud. And there are many Talmuds, and, and um, you know, occasionally in, in history, the verses like these have been suppressed for obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, <coughs> but there's no doubt that that there is a, a very strong anti-Christian feeling in the Talmud. So we've addressed your argument the fact that the Jews worked however they could to oppose Christianity within the societal constructs. Within their religion, they've also constructed a resistance to Christianity by completely opposing it very violently and very virulently, as you just related to us, horrible things that are said in the Talmud. But you said, and you alluded to earlier, that they're a very committed group, that they want to convince people. And so you can't simply be preaching to the choir, which is having a Talmud, or fighting a resistance movement, which is acting against Christianity. You've got to go deeper. And that gets us to what we know today as the New World Order. And, and people will say, oh, this is a conspiracy theory, and Bishop Sanborn will go in for conspiracy theories. But uh, this is not really a conspiracy theory. The idea of having uh, a world order that is Christless fits perfectly within the construct we've been talking about so far. Yes, it does. Well, first of all, it fits in with an antichrist. Uh, an antichrist can only come into a world which is prepared for him, just as the Christ, the true Christ, could only come into uh, the world that was prepared for him. Uh, the Antichrist can only come into a world which is Christless and an Antichrist that is anti the true Christ. Uh, a transformed Christ would be fine, but not the true Christ. Uh, so the Antichrist will demand a Christless and very anti-Christian world, and and so the uh, the opposition that Jews have traditionally given to Christianity. Uh, fits right into that, and also their very, very uh, avid, uh, uh, how would you say, their activity uh, in the 19th century and the 20th century uh, against uh, the establishment of anything Christian, and also their, on the positive side, we might say, that is what they do for the uh, the, their activity for the replacement of Christian society with a secularistic a society based on all of the principles of the 18th century, uh, the, the liberalism and, and socialism, they they have always been on that side with few exceptions. I mean, if you look at, at the history of socialism, the history of liberalism, uh, they, they come down on that side uh, almost with, with very few exceptions. Uh, that, that is their, their general tendency. Because, again, the establishment of a completely secularistic and Christ-less world uh, is, is something that is, uh, favors them as a people in the sense that they are not inhibited by a Christian society. And secondly, uh, it promotes the, uh, the agenda of 
I would say, Jews that have really lost their own faith. Uh, the the uh, secularized Jew of the 19th century, who, who is very different from the Orthodox Jew. Very, very different. Uh, uh, the, the Orthodox Jew truly believes in the Torah, truly believes uh, in, in what we might, what would, you know, the, the Old Testament as the Word of God, uh, and uh, observes to a greater or lesser extent, because there's all shades of, of observance among them, but to a greater or lesser extent, the, the uh, indications of the law in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, whereas the secularized, or what they call Reformed Jew, which uh, was organized in the 19th century, uh, is, is a completely different kind of Jew. He, he's uh, completely secularized. Uh, there's uh, very little sacred in him. Uh, and uh, he wants to see a completely secularized, liberal world, uh, uh, and in most cases, socialistic. Well, I was I was going to comment, Your Excellency. Growing up in New York, you might have you must have had quite quite a good some exposure to Judaism, be it in its Orthodox or its Reform uh, uh, strains. Yes, uh, there were on my block. There were probably ten Jewish families. Uh, uh, we were Irish and Italians and Jews. <laughs> That's typical New York, and. Uh, uh, you know, we, I knew a lot of Jewish kids when I was growing up, and we played ball and did everything that everybody else did. And, uh, and we had discussions about religion. I remember some very good discussions with uh, Jewish friends that I had about religion. And uh, we talked about the true Messiah. And, and, uh, so, uh, so, yes, I do have... Uh, and they would explain to me about... Uh, Judaism. Uh, they uh, most of them were what we call conservative Jews. The, the uh, but then they said there's the Reform liberal, and then there's uh, the Orthodox. I mean, I learned a lot about Jews just growing up with them. And, and you know, it's an interesting story too. I was on the bus with one of these Jewish friends that I had, and and uh, he was telling me this was when I was about maybe twelve or thirteen years old. He said, the future of Christianity is ecumenism. <laughs> he said, it's all going, yes. And he was my age. He says, you'll see. It's all going to go together. This is about 1962, 63. I said, no. No, that's not possible. He says, yes, you'll see. It's all going to come together. I wonder if he's still around here, actually. We should track him down, find out what his inside yeah. track was. Unfortunately, his name was David Levy. There are so many David Levy's in this world <laughs> that I don't think I could possibly track him down. But I remember his telling me that I was shocked. And, and uh, now, you know, did they say that in the synagogue that this was the future of Christianity? I don't know. How did he know that? Uh, so, uh, um, and of course, it came true. Uh, From the so, mouths of twelve-year-old Jewish kids, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, yes, so I did learn a lot, uh, you know, about them, uh, growing up with them. And, and, um, so, you know, there's plenty of, uh, Jewish. Well, and it's interesting, Eric, so you're, you're expressing, uh, this sort of cordiality that's unique to America. You know, I'm not certain that, you know, young Jewish kids and Catholic kids in Austria or other parts of Europe would have grown up in the way that you did in, in, in America. There's this, 
this sort of unique situation that uh, would allow sort of cordial discussion of of religion in a way that uh, you did because it's a young nation and there wasn't um, a long memory of wrongs and uh, betrayals. I wouldn't say that so much as a nation which uh, was uh, a melting pot, and especially New York was a melting pot. There, were, there was everything in New York. I mean, you couldn't just everybody lived together, and you know, you you knew of differences in religion. I mean, there was no idea of ecumenism with these people. There was no idea of of abandoning your Catholic ideas at all. Uh, and they didn't, you know, abandon their Jewish ideas either. But they lived down the block. They were there. They, uh, you know, they they were nice and pleasant. You know, there wasn't a <laughs> nothing else to do but be nice back and and to to you know there, there was a that that's unique to the United States that everyone arrives and we're all here and we, we basically have to get along. That's unique to the United States. And also, the United States never had a Catholic society. So there was never something to, quote-unquote, overthrow in the United States. The, the secularistic world already existed for them. They had already achieved, or, or they, they didn't even have to help achieve it. It, it was achieved in, 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 in the American Revolution, the secularistic society. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why they were so attracted to this country was that they did not have to work against an established Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox um, uh, society that uh, uh, impeded what they they wanted to do. Uh, for example, I mean, you know, we think of uh, Jews as you know bankers and and jewelry dealers and. A lot of the reason for that was that they were excluded from many professions, and that was the only thing they could do. <laughs> they, they, uh, there were many professions that they could not get into uh, in Europe, uh, and uh, and I'm not, you know, necessarily criticizing that. I'm, uh, they they did not want Jewish lawyers. They did not want Jewish uh, university professors. They because they it was an established Christianity. Just as I, you know, I don't think that you would have a real great ability, uh, you know, if I went to Israel and presented myself as a professor of, <laughs> of history, say, in the, the local Israeli university, I don't think I would have a great chance of getting hired. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just natural. Uh, it, it's if there is an established religion, obviously the established religion is going to be favored, and those who are not of the established religion are going to take the back seat in, in a lot of ways. So uh, a lot of the, the things that Jews um, turned to uh, typically were, were things that they could do just to make a living. Uh, for example, Hollywood was established as a movie-making uh, movie place because the Christian establishment in New York didn't want the Jews involved in making movies in the early part of the 20th century. So they all went out to Hollywood. They went to California and established a almost entirely Jewish movie-making business, mostly Russian Jews. And that that's 
that's in a, I saw that in a video about, uh, and it was not anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish in any way. It was just the fact that that they, uh, in order to, to they, they were excluded in many cases you know, from, from doing various things. Uh, and, 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 and uh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to add on to the point you, you'd said that they had penetrated these these fields, but this is when you would say they were really unleashed. They were unshackled from whatever restrictions they had in the Middle Ages or even in in the late uh, 18th century, uh, 19th century, uh, banking, education, art, and music. Um, but I think the well, three banking they were always in. They were always in banking, even in the Middle Ages. And Christian monarchs borrowed money from them for their wars. That, that right. Is well, because they, they, the they could charge, they could because they could charge interest, uh, and that's why they were the sort of the lender of last resort. Um, yes. So obviously, banking, education, art, and music. You've mentioned that already, but I know that three things that are uh, a particular focus for you. Uh, and you've alluded to one already, film and entertainment, the press and the media, and writ large socialism and communism. So you've already talked about, uh, a little bit at least, I know you, you, you can never talk too much about your um, lack of love for the modern cinema, Your Excellency, but apart from that, uh, the press and then socialism and communism, can you comment on that? Uh, yes, well, the... Uh, um uh, they inserted themselves very, very early into the press. Uh, and, uh, for example, Joseph Pulitzer of the Pulitzer Prize was a, a Jew. He ran the New York Herald. Uh, and uh, in the 1880s, you know, so they, they were already uh, very active in that. The New York Times, Ox, was a Jew. That was 1848, I think, or very early, like that. Um, the, so they saw the a power of the press in a democratic society. They understood that right away. Uh, they are astute businessmen, and they also knew that the press would have a tremendous power to influence politics uh, and uh, uh, for the liberal Jewish causes uh, if they got control of the press. And, and so they, they did. They, they, they were very, very active in, in controlling the press and then controlling media, uh, and uh, of course, the movie industry too. Uh, it's you know, uh, you know, it, it's almost all Jewish uh, because they uh, they wanted obviously to to control those things. And democracies are very, very much controlled by media. Uh, you know, it, most people look at the television and decide. You know, they're they're told what to think by by newscasters and. And they're very, very deeply influenced, most people, by what the television tells them to think or, or what television shows them or what television doesn't show them. There's uh, things that, that go unsaid uh, or things that are emphasized as, as agenda for, for whatever political ends people want. You know? uh, that, that's a very, very powerful influence. And, and uh, they got a hold of it early on, particularly in this country. Uh, and uh, and then the, the movie industry as well, which has a very very formative influence on culture, uh, uh, just an enormous influence on culture. Uh, and uh, so you know, many many actors are, are Jewish, and you know a disproportionate number. Uh, uh, and 
um, the uh, entertainment business in general is is Jewish. Uh, so they they did uh, understand the power of culture and the power of the press in forming a, a society and in for, and and promoting their cause. Uh, so that's why you know most people would say yes, the press is liberal. You know, it's hard to think of one single piece of media that is not liberal. You know, as, uh, unless you know it's some little magazine or some little newsletter, but uh, it, it most of the, the mainstream press and is liberal. And uh, the the movie industry has been used uh, a lot for the promotion of things that are, are quite liberal. The uh, um, <clears throat> for example, Roosevelt told Hollywood to make movies in making Stalin look good because there was criticism in World War II. Why are we supporting Stalin against Hitler when Stalin is, is worse than Hitler? <laughs> so to, to counteract that, he called upon uh, the, uh, the Hollywood moguls to, uh, to make Stalin look good in movies. And, you know, it's a very powerful instrument. Um, the uh, the also the they promoted uh, the civil rights movement. They would show, for example, in World War II, uh, black soldiers with white soldiers. That did not exist. There was not integration of the armed forces until Korea. So they, there was there was segregation of the armed forces in World War II. You would never see blacks with whites. Uh, but that was something that, in order to promote that, all of the World War II movies that were made after the war showed blacks with whites as part of the, the promotion of uh, one of their causes. Uh, they, they traditionally identified with the blacks, the oppressed blacks, because they thought they too were oppressed and, and they wanted to promote you know, the, the black cause uh, out of sympathy for the blacks. Uh, and um, the... Um, um, so the the uh, so that that was that was their uh, their seizure we might say of the entertainment and media uh, business and then the uh, and the press as well so um, uh, you know it, those are very very powerful things and then as I said before traditionally they have been associated both in Europe and in this country with socialism and communism you have Karl Marx you have Engels they were both Jews. Uh, you have uh, Leafnext in uh, in uh, Kaiser's Germany and Rosa Luxemburg. I already mentioned her. You had uh, Ferdinand Lassalle. He was Jewish. Um, uh, oh, many many others. I just can't think of them right now. Heinrich Heine was Jewish, a uh, socialist and communist. Um, so, uh, you know, if you look at their voting records. Uh, they're they're always uh, for liberal Democrats in this country. I mean, very very few of them support what you call conservatives. Uh, it is just part of their agenda, and that's uh, so that's their history. Um, we want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. Uh, I'm Stephen Heitner, and His Excellency has just been recounting as we have throughout this entire episode. Uh, a history of Jewish resistance to Catholicism started in the very beginning. Uh, obviously, in Scripture, we can see that they resisted. Um, we can see in the Acts of the Apostles that they actively sought to murder Christians. 
Um, they had to change their religion using the Talmud, um, and they also opposed uh, the church whenever possible. Uh, we haven't had time to talk about uh, what, what role they played in Spain leading up to their expulsion. And then finally, once uh, we got past the French Revolution and a larger integration, not just in Europe, but in the rest of the West, um, how they've risen to prominence and are now pulling many of the levers of power. You're going to see we're, we're up towards the end of our episode today, and there's a couple points to be addressed because the casual listener maybe might say, you know, Your Excellency, I'm uncomfortable with all of this discussion about the Jews. You know, uh, um, Catholics get this rap for being anti-Semitic. I'm a bit uncomfortable with all of this discussion, even if they grant all of the facts. There's this psychological burden that's been put on them by the, the media, which, as you said, is controlled by certain people. When, when we say that the opposition of the church to Judaism is not a question of race, but of religion, what do we mean by that? Well, first, we have to say that when you say the word Jew, you're talking about both race and religion that there is a Jewish race, that it is essentially Semitic, but it is a separate race in the sense we might say the Irish or the Italians are a race. I mean, they are people that are different from their other, from the other Semites around them, uh, even though their, their blood might be the same, uh, but they are, they, you know, are people, and they, the Church has absolutely no opposition to them as a people. Uh, our Lord uh, was a Jew, Our Lady was a Jew, St. Joseph was a Jew, the Apostles were Jews. Uh, you know, they, 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 how could you be opposed to them on the question of race? But it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with their religion, and that is that they, uh, they opposed themselves to the true Messiah, and that their religion is now defined against Christianity by a single thing, and that is, the rejection of Christ as the Messiah. Uh, that's the one great obstacle, we might say. Because, I mean, they, they would not object to uh, the Messiah founding a church and, and you know, with, with the authority to teach, rule, and sanctify. If they converted, that, that would not be an objection. That's a big objection for a Protestant, but it's not for a Jew. He understands an authoritative religion, the, the role of the prophets and the, the, the role of Moses. And, uh, you know, he, it's, they're not Bible thumpers. <laughs> they understand a, a, a priesthood and, and a, an established authority of religion. So they're, they're not going to object to a pope or to the authority of the church. They're objecting to a single thing, and that is the messianic dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, so that, that's where there is a, a very strong opposition between Catholicism and Judaism. Well, and obviously we saw this manifested back in the release of that movie, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. He caved into some pressure and had just a few words removed from the movie. And those famous words were in, in Aramaic, probably, his blood be on us and on our children. Although it stayed in the Aramaic. I don't know if you know that. Right, but the, I guess the subtitles were not translated. It's not in the subtitle. It's not in the subtitle. Right. So it was said but not translated. Um, yeah. Why is this such a... 
I mean, obviously we saw it uh, a few years ago when we had this uh, movie come out, but this is a big issue. When we talk about the Jews and the death of our Lord, when we talk about deicide, um, why is that the issue with the Jews, would you say, Your Excellency? Well, it's tied to it. It's the rejection of Christ as the true Messiah. Now, it's, it's intimately tied to it because if he is a false messiah, then the Jews were right to call for his death. That's according to the law. They said to Pilate, we have a law. He made himself equal to God, and he has to die for that. And they were absolutely right in that. See, so if Christ is a false messiah, then Judaism is true, and they were right to put him to death. So Jews today cannot say cannot repudiate the, the death of Christ without repudiating also the law. They can't say our ancestors were crazy for putting him to death. They were absolutely right for putting him to death if he was a false messiah. On the other hand, if he was the true messiah and they put him to death, then the, the ones in the, at the, in the early in the first century were deicides, in fact, that is, they put God to death, and the Jews coming after them are implicitly so, in as much as they must, if they if they consent to something that was wrong, then then they they by consent they they, they are cooperating in that. So you, so they're in a dilemma. There's, if he was a false messiah, then it was right to put him to death. If he was the true messiah, then their ancestors were wrong to put him to death. And they must condemn what their ancestors did. And that would then say that Judaism is a false religion because Christ is the true Messiah. So they, they are in a, a locked room, so to speak, on that. That's a dilemma. They're on the horns of a dilemma. No matter which way they go, they have a serious problem. <laughs> Might it be the limbo of the unjust, Your Excellency? <laughs> I don't know, but they cannot escape from a connection to their ancestors who crucified Christ if they continue to say that he was a false messiah. They cannot escape that connection because they must agree with it. They must say, yes, they were right to put him to death. That's their problem. And I think mm. they understand that problem. I think they understand the dilemma. Uh, that, that if we're saying he's false, well, then he had to die. Otherwise, we must deny the law. Law of Moses. And that's precisely, and that's what moved Pilate. Pilate was not moved by the arguments of taxation or that he was a, ra a Galilean rabble rouser. He wasn't moved by that at all. But when they said, when they transferred it to a theological argument and said, we have a law, he made himself equal to God and he must die. That's when Pilate was moved. And that was the motive of the crucifixion. So that, that's, in the, that's history. And so, you know, the, the, what's recorded there in the Gospels is absolutely accurate, and, and it's, some, it's a dilemma that they cannot escape. And I think it's a powerful point you make, Eric Lucene. It's, it's, I think it's a good place for us to finish today's episode. I suppose what I want to leave with is the question, 
should all of us act like the 12 or 13 year old Bishop Sanborn when we run into Jewish people, that is, be friendly, engage with them, discuss uh, theological issues, uh, if we can, try to convert them, um, uh, play ball with them in our neighborhood, I suppose, if, if, we, if we live with them. Uh, do you feel like you're, you can condone the, atti- the attitude and behavior of the 12 to 13 year old version of yourself and, and say that's a, an example that uh, we should follow? Well, St. Paul says we should be at peace with all men to the extent that it's possible. And again, it's a paraphrase. I'm very bad at direct quotes. But that's essentially well, that's because you're Catholic. Uh, and <laughs> you're, no, so, you're no good with your texts. <laughs> yes. Uh, so in that sense, you know, there, there should, uh, we should try to be at peace with them, uh, you know, in the sense of to treat them justly and charitably and, uh, and of course, try to convert them. Uh, the, ordinarily, we, uh, the Church says we should not seek out friendships with non-Catholics. That would apply to any non-Catholic. But sometimes these friendships occur. They, they occur by their own, you know, the kid down the block, and he's on the, on the same street on which you're playing ball. Uh, the, the, they just occur, and, and, you know, as long as it's not a, in any way an occasion of sin, like, you know, if they're trying to undo your, your faith or something like that, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't uh, see any problem with it. But uh, it's, it, Catholics in general should not seek out friendships with non-Catholics. It's considered in general an occasion of sin. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes, as I said, especially in a very mixed society uh, that we live in, there are business relationships that occur. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a very mixed bowl of people, and uh, sometimes you, you just can't avoid those things. But, um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know what else. Uh, he was the kid down the block, what can I tell you? And we did not avoid religion. We were not ecumenical at all. He would he would uh, defend his Judaism, and I would, of course, defend Catholicism. And, and uh, uh, there was no question of that at all. Uh, well, for some reason, I can't imagine you avoiding discussing Catholicism. <laughs> no, no, Forgive me. Always interested in it. And uh, uh, so, uh, but, you know, I... Uh, I was never a Jew hater, right? I've mean, I, I known many Jews in my life, and uh, uh, I've dealt with many in New York City, uh, you know, on business levels and, and worked for Jews, and uh, I, I have never had reason to hate Jews. Uh, the, uh, I mean, certainly we are opposed on matters of religion. We are opposed on matters of society and, and what is right for society, but... Uh, you know, on a personal level, I, I just uh, never had it, and I don't think I ever will. And you would argue that's not a healthy attitude for Catholics to have either. Yes, I think that, that you should try to be at peace with all men, as as St. Paul says, and but at the same time, have the same attitude as the Church always had, that you want to protect yourself from any kind of non-Catholic or anti-Catholic influence that any of them may have. See, so, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 every case would be different. You could get some very, very uh, anti-Catholic Jews, and there are many very anti-Catholic Jews there. The Hasidim will not even talk to us. 
the Orthodox in principle will not talk to us. Uh, they're, uh, when I see them in airports, they turn their, their back to me. I mean, there are some very, very anti-Catholic Jews. Uh, and, uh, but still, I mean, I would treat them justly. You have to treat everyone justly and charitably. Everyone, I don't care who they are, justly and charitably. And we should also work for the conversion of the Jews. And I don't think that it helps Catholicism in the conversion of the Jews to carry on like a bitter hatred of them. You're not going to convert anybody by constantly battering them. Uh, you know, by, by treating them decently, uh, I think you, you might draw them. And I, think I know that, that may not be popular with a lot of people, but that's what I think. Well, and I, I'm hoping that we can reach some of those people today. Actually, if some of them are listening to our, our episode and either they don't have a, a well-formed idea or they've never really uh, gotten a good perspective in the sort of uh, expansive chronological way we've looked at it today, I'm hoping that uh, you can give them uh, a well-grounded perspective. And, and if so, then uh, mission accomplished for the penultimate episode in our series. We'll come back next month for the final episode in Root of the Rot. I suppose there's there's not too much else to say after this, uh, Your Excellency. We're we're headed headed for the end, so um, we'll talk about I guess the the very end of the rot, <laughs> the 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 stage that we're living in today. Thanks so much for for joining us, and we look forward to wrapping up the series with you next month. Okay, thank you. If you have any questions for His Excellency, remember that you can write to us root of the rot at truerestoration.org. And we will make sure to convey questions to His Excellency and either address them in a future episode. Remember, there's only one left, so get in your questions now if you'd like to ask them. And we'll, we'll deal with them in our final episode. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, would you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.